Lars Leijan. Humoral greetings, Device Nation. I hope you're having a wonderful day. I know I certainly am. Spring is in the air, flowers are blooming, birds are singing, and the scent of methyl methacrylate is wafting through the air. I was smelling some tasty treats in the OR lounge the other day, and the conversation was centered around food. What a shocker. And the topic turned to one of my favorite subjects, ice cream. A nurse shared with me that a scrub tech she knew who had about two years of food stored up and had made dehydrated ice cream sandwiches for the staff. Apparently, they were amazing. Now, if everyone in the room were cartoon characters at that moment, there would have been thought bubbles above us all with question marks, all asking the same thing. Just how exactly do you dehydrate an ice cream sandwich? I told her my new plan for the apocalypse was now just to have enough ammo to shoot my way to his house. She told me her plan for the apocalypse was just to kill him and take all the food for her and her family. I told him that to his face, she said with a smile. I believe his response was, I hope you have enough ammo to get to it. Well, let me put your mind at ease, soldier. There will be no live fire exercises today, although a little Cherry Garcia is most appreciated. Well, this is Device Nation the voice of operative orthopedics. And this is Kevin Brown, your virtual ASR. I know somebody out there is thinking, ASR, what's that? No, it's not alternative summary reporting. It's associate sales rep, and I will gladly be paid in ice cream. Well, what goes great with ice cream? A movie, and one that is in my top 10 is, drum roll please, A Bug's Life. A lot of social and political commentary tucked in that movie. Great lines, a lot of painfully dry humor. Love it. One thing I was thinking about this morning was the scene where our ant protagonist Flick stepped out of line to confront the grasshoppers, terrorizing the ant colony, notably their leader, Hopper. Let's listen in. You're lower than dirt. You're an ant. You're wrong, Hopper. Ants don't serve grasshoppers. It's you who need us. Personally, I would have rewritten this whole exchange with Hopper as an HCA purchasing director. You're lower than dirt. You're reps. <laughs> I love this scene as I seemingly have this celebrity crush on surgeons and reps who step out of line, right, to make things happen. We talked recently about the undertakers, the caretakers, and the overtakers. There's certainly a few undertakers in our business who are negative about everything, but caretakers seem to be the M.O. of most in our world. Let's define that for a second. Caretaker refers to someone who is employed to look after or take charge of goods, property, or a person. Nothing wrong with this role at all. It's a laudable one, but I believe those who step out of line, the overtaker, will ultimately carry the day in this new world of private equity, bolt-ons, MCOs, risk-sharing, optum, and Summit Health world we find ourselves in. Speaking of overtaker and stepping out of line, we have an incredible conversation coming up today with a surgeon who did just that. The CEO of COR, that center of rotation for those of you that still have that new car smell, the liege of lateralization, the governor of the Glenosphere. I could do this all day long. Dr. Mark Frankel, you're going to want to hang around for that. Well, speaking of private equity, I saw something the other day that may interest you as it certainly interested me. What if your surgeon was the equity? I'm talking about a bank owned by orthopedic surgeons for orthopedic surgeons. 
Pretty interesting, huh? I had the privilege of meeting with both of the principals on this project, and I was so sold on it. I'm an investor, and yes, fellow box openers, you can be part of this investment opportunity as it's not just open to surgeons. What really intrigued me about the whole concept is that they're integrating the model of a physician-owned ASC to the ownership and operation of banking. This is going to open up a lot of doors for your surgeon if they're the bank, like being able to help their deductible poor patients finance their procedures. And I haven't even touched capital expansion, personal loans, capital equipment, on and on and on. I think it's a timely proposition in the midst of the business of medicine. Want to learn more? Reach out to Marty at physiciansfirstbank.com. I'll put all that in the show notes. Great name, great concept. Check it out and tell me what you think. Well, speaking of the business of medicine. I love this quote I saw the other day by Florida radiologist Dr. Aaron Hathaway. Most doctors would rather not have to worry about the business of running a healthcare organization and would prefer to focus on taking care of patients. But in today's world, you better learn it. It's what runs the world. Indeed. On that note, it was such an honor and a privilege attending the most recent Foundation for Physician Advancement meeting last weekend on that very topic. I took a lot of notes and learned a lot on subjects that are affecting surgeons right now. Now, The Undertaker will look at some of these topics like contracts and billing and private equity and say, none of it matters. It's a race to the bottom, right? The caretaker is looking at this information and saying, if this does not help me with back orders, inventory for next week, and securing POs, I'm not interested. The overtaker, on the other hand, the overtakers among us see this as an opportunity for what? A seat at the table. And as Dr. Michael asked so eloquently said, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. He was speaking to surgeons when he said that, but he just as easily could have been speaking to the box openers among us. Because guess what? If we're not at the table, then we just might be on the menu as well. There's a bunch of things we can talk about on this very subject about how do we strategically find ourselves at the table. One of the topics that we're going to talk about today is social media. I have heard so much on this subject from reps in the field. There's a lot of challenges right now with company lockdowns on it. I believe that there is a pathway to compliantly engage on social media and accomplish two primary goals. Number one, a personal brand. And number two, bringing value to those you interact with. Now, look, there's a lot of opinions on this subject. Go on to LinkedIn and there is endless discussions about it. But what has worked for me is forget about your personal brand. Just focus on bringing value to those that you interact with. And guess what? Your brand will take care of itself. And here's the easiest way in the world to remember the Device Nation strategy for social media. I want you to grab a pen, grab a piece of paper, and I want you to write social media on it. Got that? Now, I want you to take that same pen, preferably a G2, my personal favorite, and I want you to go to the M and the E in media, and I want you to draw a circle around those two letters, and I want you to put a slash through it. There, your social media strategy is complete. See, now, wasn't that simple? People have been putting the me in social media for eons, 
And if you want to tell the world that you sold $50 million in Luke Wires last year, one titanium club, and just bought a chalet in Vail, I don't care. We're Device Nation, not Daddy Daycare. What I would ask you to consider, whether you're a company or a device rep, is do you want likes or do you want to make the world a better place? The choice you make will absolutely determine the content you create and the perception people have of you. So... In lieu of all the changes, perhaps creating a seat at the table for you could be the result of a personal brand you created vis-a-vis serving and engaging people in an entertaining and compliant way. Something to think about, right? Well, our next guest will certainly give us all something to think about. Dr. Mark Frankel, he came along into a world that was all doing reverse shoulders a certain way and just like Flick on Bugs Life, he stepped out of line and said, no, I think there's a better way, a different way to do this procedure. And it is truly an honor and a privilege to have him on the show to share that story with Device Nation. Dr. Frankel, welcome to the show, sir. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Dr. Frankel, I've always loved the famous Isaac Newton quote, if I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. Well, you, sir are one of those giants, and it is no small irony that we're going to be talking to you today about those very shoulders, among other things. But first, let's go back to Grinnell. What put you on the path to medicine? I have an older brother. He's 10 years older than me. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I was 16, he was uh, doing his internship at USC, and I went out to visit him for spring vacation. And he said, kid, you want to be a doctor. He goes, it's a really great job. You get to help people. You always have a job. People look up to you. But he said, if, if you, you know, you, you have to get all A's. And at that point, I was not necessarily very serious about academics, but he's my big brother. And I trusted him and I said, okay. So that's, uh, that's what got me into medicine, quite honestly. Now, my, my family was such that we were a really small family and, uh, there weren't probably a lot of other career options that I was aware of. It was either that doctor or a lawyer, and he sort of guided me into medicine. Wow. Big brother. He did that in orthopedics, too. So after I got into med school, he goes, kid, you want to be an orthopedic surgeon. They're always really happy. They're in good mood because you like uh, athletics and sports. And he said, but you, you got to be in the top of your class to get into orthopedics. Sort of advice I, I also listened to him. I got to ask you right here, Dr. Frankel, was he the one who said, kid, you got to develop a reverse shoulder? No, no, no. no. He wouldn't have any clue about that. No, <laughs> no, no. That, that came about much later. And that was more based upon my recognition that what I was doing at the time for my patients was not working and I needed to have a better solution. Well, I'm going to ask you about that very thing, but I want to talk a little bit about shoulder and elbow adult reconstruction at the Mayo Clinic. Two giants in the land there, if you've ever heard of the Cofield shoulder, Dr. Bob Cofield and Dr. Bernie Mori, a guest on this very show. What was that experience like working with those gentlemen? Well, you know, it's interesting when people ask me, like, how did I do shoulder and elbow? When I was doing my residency, the guy who was my chairman was a guy named Phil Spiegel, and he was a, a great mentor to me and, and really helped me in, in, in sort of focus in my life. And at that point, I really loved doing research. I had done a year of research between my second and third year of med school with a guy named George Galante, uh, and George was one of the pioneers in, in total joint replacement. Yes. And George's major contribution was the recognition that if you had metal with a certain pore size, you can get bone to grow into it. And so th- during that year, I did many things. One of the things I did was to work 
under Dr. Galante's tutelage and, and uh, did several studies looking at different things that can enhance bony ingrowth into metal. And that, I think, was in like 1983. So when I started my residency in 84 or 5, I had already started having a real significant interest in orthopedic research based upon that year. So during my residency, we didn't really have much research, but I did a lot of it. So Dr. Spiegel, who was my mentor, he he is a really interesting guy. In the 60s, he went to Davos and uh, spent a year in the lab there and came back and was one of the early uh, adopters of using the AO technique to treat fractures with internal fixation, which at that point was relatively revolutionary. And Dr. Spiegel urged me to do the same thing he did, which is to spend a year in Davos at the lab. And uh, so um, he sent me to visit it, and I really liked it. And so that was uh, going to be the first scholarship I did when I finished my residency. I knew I wanted to do a a clinical uh, fellowship, and I wasn't really quite sure of the area, but I knew I wanted to work with people that were key opinion leaders because I was really curious as to what allowed them to have such an impact on our profession. I interviewed with Dr. Mankin at Harvard, who's a tumor guy, I interviewed with Bert Zanz, uh, Joe Lane, and then when I went to Mayo, I, I saw both Dr. Cofield and Dr. Mori, and I thought, this is awesome. These two guys are in these two areas, and um, that sort of sealed the deal. So when I came back from Switzerland, that's what I did, and they have continued to shape and guide my life to this very day. They really have been extraordinarily important uh, mentors in my life, and I look to them often for inspiration and also for advice. And my plug will be that uh, during this year's annual American Shoulder Elbow Meeting, Dr. Uh, Cofield will be giving, giving the near lecture, which is a special invited lecture. And Dr. Mori will be giving the first ever Dr. Mori lecture for excellence in elbow research. So they continue to be very prominent in my life and my thoughts. Uh, they've really helped shape me uh, in terms of my values as a profession. You went on to start a private practice group there in Tampa with a huge focus on orthopedic research. And I believe you you brought up uh, Dr. Near. I believe a coveted Near Award came out of that very group in the mid-90s, right? So what happened is uh, during my residency, at University of South Florida under Dr. Spiegel, there's a political upheaval. And uh, when I left, the residency folded because of a, a significant uh, problem between the university and the Department of Orthopedics. And so our group, the university group at, at South Florida, left in mass and started this private practice group called the Florida Institute. So it's basically a bunch of academicians who then got so frustrated with the university that they set up their own shop. So when I finished my training, I was looking for a job. I really liked the faculty here and really thought it would be a good combination. And uh, so when I was hired, many of them had already had the mindset that they wanted to be academic orthopedic surgeons. And actually during that time in the group, the group was just formed when I started, a year, I think after I started, or two years. And we were trying to identify our identity and uh, we would invite Dr. Mori periodically to come down to give us guidance because everyone in the group had respected what he had done as a leader in orthopedics. Yeah. And one of the things that we really wanted to accomplish was we wanted to be private practitioners that really were productive academically. During that time period, there was an unprecedented activity that I, I think was unprecedented, maybe it wasn't, that uh, we uh, all agreed to a 4% tax of our gross revenues 
that would go to this research fund. And then that allowed us uh, that were interested in pursuing orthopedic research to pursue it with um, with some financial support from the group. And that actually turned out to be really helpful for us because we were able to be very productive academically in, in doing all sorts of different studies. Let's stay in the mid-90s for just a bit to create a backdrop. Some questions I wanted to ask you. Uh, operative options for cuff tear arthropathy. What was the lay of the land then? So the, the term cuff tear arthropathy is an interesting one because it, it sort of is a, it's a maybe more specific term because there's a lot of patients that had uh, deficiency of their rotator cuff that created a, a, a variety of different clinical scenarios right. that really had very poor surgical options. For example, you might have a patient who had a massive rotator cuff there, they had no evidence of arthritis, but their shoulder was so grossly unstable because they did not have the stabilizing force of the rotator cuff to deal with an unopposed deltoid. And so at that time, those patients were left with what we would term a pseudo-paralytic shoulder because they acted with a really uh, poor motion and a, a dissociative pattern between their humerus and glenoid. So it was a very distinctive motion pattern. So that was one problem. Another problem was the patient who had glenohumeral arthritis with a rotator cuff tear. Um, and it was a large rotator cuff tear. It was problematic because uh, there was ample evidence that anatomic shoulder replacements in that group didn't fare well because of an imbalance that would lead to early glenoid loosening. And then there was uh, sort of the classic thing that near described called cuff tear arthropathy, where there was a really inflammatory arthritis. The head was high riding. There was asymmetric glenoid bone loss. And again, that, there was no good surgical solutions. At, at that time, the sort of standard thing that you would do is a hemiarthroplasty, and uh, we used the term limited goals, meaning that we didn't really expect the patients would improve sufficiently uh, functionally. They might have pain relief, but their functional uh, improvement would be negligible. So that, that's what we did. And, uh, you know, it was really disappointing because the outcomes were substandard. And uh, the additional burden of that was in some patients that you had done a hemiarthroplasty in, they had progressive glenoid-sided wearing that made their symptoms even more unbearable for them. And uh, so this created a, a huge problem in the patients I was taking care of. And that's what made me search for alternative solutions because all these other solutions were really substandard in terms of me being able to help people with their problem. One surgeon that was working on his own solution in the midst of all this, Dr. Paul Gramont, what was his idea of how to address this? So, you know, I didn't, I never met uh, Paul Gramont. But what happened is, so in 1997, uh, there was the, every three years, there's this meeting, the International Conference of Shoulder Surgery. Unfortunately, the last one got canceled because of the pandemic, but it's been uh, fairly consistent. I think near uh, started that concept in the 80s. And in 1997, it was in Sydney, Australia. It was the first time I saw outcomes of this reverse shoulder prosthesis by some of the French surgeons. And it was it was fairly remarkable. Um, and it got me very interested. And along that meeting, I, I met an English surgeon by the name of Ian Bailey, who actually had developed his own reverse shoulder prosthesis called the Bailey Walker. 
So I, I had an interest because it, it looked very promising. And that was in the early part of 97. In the later part of 97, Tonier was launching the Aqualis anatomic shoulder in the United States. And they were looking for people to be involved in that launch. And so they invited me to visit uh, uh, Pascal Below and, and Joe Walsh. So during that trip, you know, I, I talked that they were unbelievably gracious hosts. They were so uh, nice and supportive. I'd watch them operate, which was amazing. They were technically excellent. And then afterwards, we'd go out to dinner, and I would just pepper them with questions. I had a little tape recorder. I recorded everything. I took extensive notes. Wow. I probably drove them crazy because I was like hours, and I just kept asking them. So it's more so with Jill than with Pascal that I started talking about these patients. And he said, you know, he'd been using the Garmat device, and he was pretty satisfied with it. And that got me very much encouraged to go down that pathway. So that that was sort of the culmination of the things I'd seen. And after talking with him, it increased my conviction that this was a pathway that I needed to explore because I needed to come back and have a better option for these people that really were pretty miserable. Some of them were people miserable that I had initially tried to intervene and help them to my disappointment. Let's open that up right there. As you synthesized uh, the work of Dr. Grimaud and the work going on overseas, what was the light bulb moment for you when you thought, I've got a better way of doing this? Probably around 99 or 2000. So the initial device, you know, how it came about was sort of a serendipity. And I would say uh, there was a lot of serendipity in, in what happened in, in this process. I would like to take more credit, but I think it was a lot of luck. I'd say more luck than anything else. And one of the things that happened is, so I had this picture uh, from one of the glossy promos for the Grimaud device, and it was sold by a French company at that point, and it was all in French, and I, I brought it home with me. And at that point, I was working with How Medica to design an implant with Mike, Mike Pearl and Greg Nicholson. So I reached out to their engineer to make me a custom implant, and I gave them the glossy picture of the Grimaud, and they gave me something that did not look anything like that. And I did it, and it actually failed pretty early. But there were some interesting things that came out of that. One was there was an oblong glenosphere that uh, the, the engineer decided to use. And, and uh, that struck me as sort of an okay thing to do. So uh, that didn't end well for me. I, I got kicked off the Helmetica <laughs> design team. And um, I then got, I was working with this small company called Encore Medical, which is really small. and. Uh, that, that benefited me because I was one of their few customers, so they were extraordinarily receptive. And uh, they had a really, they were very favorable. There was an engineer I worked with, Dennis Mode, who was very easy to work with. I would do a case, I called Dennis up, and I talked to him about things that I liked or didn't like. Around in 1999, that base plate, that is still the same base plate, I came up with that idea. And it was a combination of things that came out from my work in Davos uh, with uh, in the lab about internal fixation and some of the work I did with George Galante about ingrowth material. And I, I really thought that that was uh, really going to help and made me think that this is probably a better mousetrap. And, and uh, 
the the other thing that happened around that time, my my fellow, who's my partner, is Mark Mile, and Mark speaks like nine languages. It's very ridiculous that he can be so talented. I think it's unfair, grossly, but he spoke French very well. So I had all these French articles uh, that had been published in French, obviously, and uh, they were about the Grammont prosthesis and talked about some of the complications such as notching. And I thought, well, this is sort of not hard to figure out. Just move the center laterally. So it was about that time that I started to think, you know, this is something really, this is going to be really uniquely different. Um, that was about the time where I started to think, you know, this is a different approach. It, it wasn't obvious to, to me how different it was until probably 2002 when I presented um, our initial series at the Academy as a poster session. And Jill came by and looked at the design and told me they were all going to fail. And I <laughs> didn't quite understand why. Uh, so at that point, I realized not only was it different, but there might be some differences that were not necessarily um, beneficial that might actually be detrimental. At that point, I didn't see that, uh, but that came later. But that's about when I really was pretty well convinced that I had something that was unique. Can you explain the whole concept of deltoid tensioning vis-a-vis the Grammont philosophy and your philosophy in a way that my biggest fan, my mom, would understand? Sure, sure. I, I would say that one of the things that happens in orthopedics is there's a solution, and then after the solution, there's a rationalization of why that solution actually worked, right? Right. So it's it's not that... Someone thought, oh, well, this is how it's going to work, and then it works. It's like, oh, this worked, and so now we need to explain why it works, and we come up with explanations as to why. So Grammont had a solution that really did work. He provided improvements in patients that we really couldn't happen. But other people had used reverse prostheses in, in the past, and it wasn't that the, the results were horrible. They just didn't have a lot of experience. But Grimaud did several things, and the one thing is he improved the fixation on his glenoid component. He introduced peripheral lock screws in that design. That was really, really revolutionary. It, it really doesn't get much discussion because everyone else discussed these other things that he thought were important. So he thought that if you had a hemisphere as opposed to anything more than a hemisphere on the glenoid side, that that would provide biomechanical benefits and that the moment that would be created between the force applied to the glenosphere and the bone would be minimal because the center of rotation of that hemisphere was concurrent with the surface of the glenoid. He also thought that by having the center of rotation of the hemisphere medial, it would provide an improvement of the deltoid moment arm and therefore improve functional outcomes, particularly in patients who had cuff loss. So that was sort of the primary thing that had been sort of postulated about why his implant worked. It was very hard to argue with that. Some real consequences of that belief uh, occurred, which I found relatively unacceptable. The first one was it really limited your ability to have different geometric shapes to deal with different pathological problems in different sized patients. So my, my earliest experience in using reverse in my practice was actually in revision of failed arthroplasties. And I really needed to have some latitude of having a variety of different 
implants available to deal with various different implant pathologies that I thought implants I needed to address. So what I mean specifically is, you know, Vermont had a base plate and two peripheral locking screws that I thought would give substandard fixation in a scenario where there was significant glenoid bone loss, because you actually need a lot more bone to get fixation in that in that scenario because the post has to have circumferential bone to give it some stability, whereas a, a if you have a monolithic screw like the DGO base plate is, you don't need much bone to get really good compression between the undersurface of the metal and the bone. Right. So that, that to me was a really big advantage in cases like that. The other consequence was that, and Grimmott stressed this, that he needed to have a non-anatomic reconstruction. And, and the consequence of that was, if you looked at someone's shoulder who had a Grimmott prosthesis, their shoulder was quite deformed. They had a very peculiar shape to it because of the consequence of the implant. Now, they did get functional improvement, so that was the trade-off potentially. So my thought has been several several that deviated from that. The first one was I wanted to learn one operation that was essentially very similar, whether it be a total or reverse. So I, I wanted to make it easier on myself. So that necessitated a, a neck shaft angle of 135. It sort of uh, required me to have um, an implant that was more anatomically consistent with an anatomical implant, right? So initially, the earliest design of the Encore Reverse, it was actually a platform total shoulder system. It had an anatomic humeral side with a socket on top, and the glenoid obviously um, had a sphere that was oblong, but it, it allowed me to address uh, various pathologies in a way that was not different from doing an anatomic total shoulder. In fact, the reamers were the same, the instruments were the same, um, because... Um, I had trained in Switzerland. All the fixation things were modeled after the AO instruments. So in in the contradistinction to Grimant's idea of non-anatomical designs to improve these things, my belief was the more we can make the shoulder look more anatomically normal to a normal shoulder, it was likely it would biomechanically behave in such a way. So to explain it to your mom, I'd say if you have a problem uh, mechanically and you you know the blueprint of the ideal way to resolve it is like the normal shoulder because it was it's designed perfectly, my belief was to make it look as much like that original as I possibly could with some constraints to allow a reverse articulation, whereas the Grimaud philosophy was to make it look quite differently, and it was predicated upon this idea of moment arm, which I don't really think, I think that came after the fact, uh, maybe I'm mistaken, but I, I don't ever, I, I don't think that's a very credible belief. I don't, I don't think if you, if you scrutinize that, you'll find it doesn't really live up to the hype, meaning there is base plate failure in Grammont devices because you still get shear across the interface, even though he had suggested that because the center of the sphere is at the surface of the glenoid, you shouldn't have those forces. It was it was a misunderstanding of how the forces are applied. So that would be the first thing. The second thing is the idea that you get this uh, super deltoid improvement 
Well, one of the issues that happened is in order to use a Gramont device, you had to lengthen the arm considerably. Right. And uh, that, that actually caused this whole idea of looking, the shoulder looked odd. And it, it had other uh, unintentional consequences that I thought were quite deleterious. Again, back to your mom, I'd say, if you saw a reverse implant that was more anatomically designed, you would not see near the deformity. You'd see that that shape of that shoulder or that shape of that deltoid looked a lot more closer to the normal human shape that you'd be accustomed to seeing in people without any shoulder implants. Wasn't uh, external rotation, too, one of the consequences of that design? The easier way to argue this would be to try to break down the consequences of that strategy and compare it to an alternative strategy to deal with the same pathology, right? Right. So if you want to compare these different philosophies or beliefs or whatever you call it, you'd have to say, well, what are the clinical consequences that if you use one implant versus another? And it was pretty obvious that there were different clinical consequences. So, for example, if you use a Gramont device, you'd have a high incidence of the humeral component abrading against the scapula because it was designed in such a way to move the humerus closer to the scapula. That's why a hemisphere was chosen to keep the center close to the scapula. And the consequence was you'd have abrasion of the polyethylene rubbing against the scapula and you got notching. The other thing is because you brought the humerus closer to the scapula, any of the tension on the rotator cuff that remained was reduced and so it was not infrequent that patients had lost rotational strength uh, instead of improving upon it. So again, if you sort of change the shape of the implants, it allows you to avoid those consequences by lateralizing the glenosphere and by having a neck shaft angle that is more inclined to normal 135, uh, notching goes away virtually. And as a result of that, there's retensioning of the rotator cuff because, again, if you just looked at the shape of someone's shoulder, you could sort of dictate because now the, the shoulder was it's shaped more closely than normal. So the muscles that are there have a better opportunity to function. Those were clinical consequences that I really thought the, the idea of a Gramont really didn't address. And, and you know, they, they tried different things then to try to obviate those problems. They started doing muscle transfers to make to make up for the loss of rotational strain. They started to move the glenosphere inferiorly on the glenoid, which lengthened the arm more. So those were adaptations that they made. And finally, they started doing things like uh, putting bone graft to lateralize the glenosphere called the bio-RSA. Those were all the attempts uh, that the, the, the surgeon that utilized that implant did to try to overcome some of the shortcomings, whereas you know the the implant I was developing and, and using at the time allowed me to do that with a, a lot more uh, I thought technical ease because it was designed specifically to avoid those problems. Uh, discuss with the audience just a second uh, the whole concept of an inlay versus onlay and why you went the direction you did. So as I said, the the early designs of the Encore reverse prosthesis. It was a platform system, so it was onlay, and it was really evident to me that if I was going to use this in, in patients that weren't in a revision, I needed to have something that would give me better motion because these people were overstuffed. It was obvious. They would be tight. And so um, I quickly realized that in order to do that, I needed to be able to put the socket 
at the surface of the cut osteotomy because that way I didn't have to over lengthen the arm. So I, I went with the idea of a platform because it's appealing, but my clinical experience clearly showed that I was not going to get the motion interoperatively that I, that I thought I could. And once I in, could inset that, it made getting the motion much easier. And uh, um, it, it allowed a lot of other advantages in terms of the technical thing of doing the surgery because now you can, you can um, sort of get the tension right. You can use the normal aversion and inclination and those sort of things to help guide where you put it. And in cases of, of malunion, it was pretty clear that if you inset the cup relative to the tuberosities, you could really still have pretty good motion, whereas if you onset it, you have to osteotomize those tuberosities. There's no way around it. I looked at your initial IDE study. Minimum 10-year results, 91% survivorship with no deterioration of function scores. Round of applause there. Congratulations. Just an incredible lead-off. And I wanted to ask you about that comment, no deterioration of functional scores. What's the secret sauce in that statement? Because I believe there's a little bit more to it. Well, again, I, you know, I, I tend to believe that, you know, depending upon the indication and the patient population, there's going to be a natural deterioration because as you get older, you'll lose some functional ability. So that sort of goes without, without saying. But again, you know, if you... Um, are able to reposition the shoulder so it looks like it's more of a normal shoulder. So restoring the the way the shoulder looks actually has these biomechanical consequences of trying to idealize the muscle tendon units that are there. So it's it's based upon this understanding that muscle physiology and the way our muscle tendons provide function is really based upon an optimization that Whoever engineered us got it exactly perfectly right, meaning that there's a length-tension relationship that idealizes when uh, when our muscles contract, they provide us maximum power. There's a direction in which the muscles are oriented that allow us to have maximal advantage of the function of that particular muscle. There's also a direct relationship to the cross-sectional area of a muscle in terms of its ability to produce power. So if you can reconstruct a shoulder in such a way that the muscles still maintain a relatively good length tension relationship, that the muscles are oriented close to their normal orientation in terms of where they're pulling, and that you do not do anything to diminish the cross-sectional area of the muscle, meaning if you lengthen the arm, one of the consequences is you decrease the cross-sectional area. So if you keep, if you minimize length in the arm, you're able to reduce the impact of the change in cross-sectional area. So if you do those things, the muscles uh, around the joint, and in this case around the shoulder, they are best able to accommodate the ability to function. Whereas if you change any of those, you start uh, having some likelihood that the muscle tendon units will start to dis- they'll start to dis- have dysfunction over time because you're asking them to work in a range that they're just not accustomed to working in. And, and they can accommodate up to about, so for example, if you lengthen a muscle more than 10%, you get outside of that length tension relationship. So if you, if you stay within that, you're pretty good. If you change the direction of the muscle tendon, it's less likely to work. So 
you know, the the idea is that if you can reconstruct the shoulder with those things in mind, you're likely to have these durable functional outcomes. And if you don't, you're not likely to have that. And I mean, some of the Grammont data would suggest that's true. Now, they have more data saying that's not the case, but I would still contend that, you know, when we talk about these principles, um, there are principles outside of what we believe that have been established because that's, we can, we can fully understand like how a muscle functions. And, and those principles can, they're, they're applicable. So I, that's my explanation. I got to go back just for a second because it was fascinating to me that this was such on the cutting edge. I read somewhere that the FDA put you kind of on a slow boat and that you had to use a bipolar as a predicate device. Yeah, it's a little bit more complicated than that, I think. Okay. Um, so when I was working for Encore Medical, it's a very small company. They really didn't have very many resources, but they were supportive. And so when I started to do this, you know, they they had this idea that perhaps they can get this FDA approved and they thought they can use the bipolar as the predicate device uh, because that is something they thought was similar. So for about a year or two, they tried to do that and uh, the FDA kept coming back and finally the FDA said, nope, we're not going to accept this. So then the the next thing to get it approved would be something called an IDE. And the initial, it took us a long time to write a proposal for the IDE because originally the FDA wanted a control group and the control group they thought would include a bipolar. The, the problem was that we, we said, no way, that we're not going to do that because we're having the revised bipolars and how are we going to justify doing it? So they finally allowed us to do a longitudinal study uh, that some of the patients were in that uh, publication that you mentioned. Uh, the the irony, of course, was that when uh, DePue bought the company that owned the Gramont, they actually went through the same pathway of trying to get it 510K approved with a bipolar, but they were more successful than Encore, and that's how it got approved. If my memory serves me correctly, how Medica had a shoulder with a bipolar on it at one time back then, didn't they? Stryker had one. And uh, Biomet had the Warland, and Warland was a great proponent. He was the designer of the implant that uh, bore his name. Uh, he even had it implanted in him, and uh, for a while it worked okay, but then uh, it later failed, uh, probably at two years or so. That was primarily in the, in the 90s because of the need to try to find a solution. That was one of the solutions that had been, you know, there was that, the bipolar, there was also something called a CTA head. That was popularized in the 90s, and they were all based upon this idea of instability with loss of a fulcrum. Because if you don't have a stable fulcrum because of an imbalance of the deltoid with unopposed horizontal force, none of those things could really work, and, and they didn't. That's how come they never stood the test of time. What was it like? You're at meetings in that time period. You're throwing these x-rays up on the screen and showing that lateralized center of rotation. How were your ideas received by your surgeon contemporaries? Well, I mean, there weren't anyone who threw things at me that I recall, although they <laughs> might have. I recall that most of the time I was disappointed, and I was mostly disappointed in myself because I felt that somehow I was not able able to effectively communicate the things that I was observing and the impact and the importance of those things in a way that was receivable. Right. Because it was so obvious to me that this was a big deal. And I must have felt like 
the kid that was ringing the bell when there was a fire and everyone was sort of blowing him off. And it, you didn't know who was because you weren't ringing the bell hard enough or it was because they just didn't want to listen. It, it just wasn't obvious. And I, I was pretty well of the belief that I just needed to have a more effective way to communicate what I, what my observations were to get people to sort of go along with it. And, uh, it just took a little longer than I thought. What kept you from giving up in the midst of, you know, uh, some criticism that, and Yeah, that that, that 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 probably inspired me more than anything. I mean, it was my okay. patients. I mean, my patients were doing well. The people that I thought I couldn't solve, I now had an answer to them. I mean, it was it was like it, so that part didn't bother me because I had people I was able to help. I remember just being elated in in some of the successes things. It was just it was obvious. I I found the a presentation recently that I I was supposed to give at the 2002 closed annual shoulder and elbow meeting and I got like four slides in and I was over time and I never got to give a talk and again I was mad at myself because I was not adequately prepared no one really had an interest either so I guess I could have uh, looking at it that way but I never did it was clear to me I had an answer for a problem that up until that point I didn't have a good answer for it wasn't perfect and I still thought there was room but it clearly worked, and it worked dramatically in many people. And it was inspiring to me to see how these people were so grateful to what I was able to do for them. And it still is. I mean, it's still every day I go to work. That's what it's like inspires me like, to do it. And so that's the that's the payoff for me. So fast forward to 2005, Encore was purchased by DJO, and I think y'all thought at the time that Reverse Shoulders would ultimately overtake the anatomic kind of a prediction I believe that you made history uh, has proved you right. Yeah. You know, it was uh, me and, and uh, Derek Papello who was, Derek was uh, my early research assistant when I was working with Encore. I wasn't so interested in what they could do for me financially. I was much more interested in resources and I needed to have like a laptop. And I needed to have a research person. And uh, I had several, Derek was by far the best. And uh, Derek, Derek is really smart and very critical in his thoughts. And he was seeing the same thing we were. I mean, it was that I think the team in Tampa, and there's several that have worked with me, like Sergio Gutierrez and Derek Capello. We saw it. I mean, it, it, they were in clinic. They videoed these people. They got it. No one else might have believed it, but we saw what we saw. And it was sort of undeniable. And I think that made us pretty well believe that the future of this was uh, was probably... I, I would have never guessed it to be quite what it is now, but it doesn't surprise me because it's so versatile that allows us to take care of so many problems that our patients come to see us with that are very complicated sometimes. And it, it's a technical operation that is a very able to be learned. There are some nuances as, as you get more uh, comfortable with utilizing this, but generally it, it's accessible. It's an accessible operation and I think that has been a great appeal. Great instruments on the Altivate, by the way, the newest iteration of your project. And I would just love you to put on your rep hat for a minute. And you're giving me an elevator pitch on this latest design. What are you going to hit me with? Well, I would hit you with that there are certain aspects of that design that are time tested. And, uh, you know, we don't have to reinvent the wheel when the wheel is perfect. So the base plate is pretty perfect for the most part. It doesn't allow you to address all problems on the guard, but for me, it allows me to do address most. 
and it's very simple. To me, a simple operation that's reproducible is really, really key. So if I got you in the elevator, I'd say, Doc, once you put this base plate in and you compare it to what you're using, it's almost for certain you won't go back because it's so much easier and you'll be much more satisfied. On the humoral side, I'd say you might notice that in your smaller patients that if you're using an implant now, that you can't get the tension right. They are over-tensioned. And I'd say with a small shell ultimate, you'll find it can fit in the bone and you'll find that you can get the tension right because the design of the implant was specifically to address the problem of smaller individuals with smaller shaped bones that would uh, allow us to get the tension right. I'd also go on to say, you know, there's different stem lengths. So you could use a short stem implant that might be helpful in cases of malunion where you want to try to change the position of the socket relative to the tuberosities and not get impacted by the humeral shaft uh, uh, in terms of where the socket is because you don't have to use much of the canal in a short-stemmed implant. Oh, I guess the last thing I'd say is, if you are going to utilize a fracture, a use a reverse refracture, there's no implant that will allow you to get the tuberosities perfectly right because the holes uh, uh, on the implant, which are very critical to enhance fixation and also to allow you to reproducibly anatomically reconstruct the tuberosities, they're ideally placed for that in mind. So it, it does allow you the added advantage of dealing with any sort of fracture around the humerus because of that design with the holes in different positions uh, for uh, ideal suture placement. You've got an exciting uh, future as a box opener, doctor, if you want to come over to the dark side. <laughs> well, you know, I, I would anticipate I can sell this better than anyone because I believe in it and I utilize it all the time. And again, it's one of those things that these are observations that I've made throughout my life. and. They're, they're not infallible, but they've, they've certainly helped me in my practice. And uh, I think it can help uh, many others in their practice if they uh, are interested in sort of thinking about how they might take care of their patients. And also if they think about the scenarios where they're just not very satisfied with what they're able to do surgically with some of the pathologies that they encounter. So what opportunities do you provide for surgeons listening? They're saying, hey, that sounds pretty cool. I'd love to see Dr. Frankel put some of these in. Can they come over and, and work with y'all? For the pandemic, we would routinely have people visit us at Tampa General. It was all a great experience. They would spend a day in the OR with me, and uh, uh, it was really enjoyable. They get to sort of be scrubbed observers, so they got in close. They got to see what we did, the good, bad, ugly. Some people stayed longer if they wanted to and see the patients in their follow-up period so they can see some of the patients we previously operated on to see what the outcomes were. So that that, that has been a really uh, enjoyable part of my life is having people visit me because I, I love having the people there. I love talking with them, and I get to learn uh, in an environment that's sort of easy for me and uh, I love to share some of the things that uh, have really helped me in my practice. If the surgeons want to contact you uh, just about the design, uh, how, how would they best connect with you? They can email or text me. Generally, it's best to go through some of the DGO people sort of facilitate that because there's a formal thing that uh, DGO has arranged to help uh, uh, make those connections easier and more uh, a little bit more regimented. I'm not, I'm not very good at organizational skills. In fact, I suck. Uh, <laughs> and I can give you an example that I didn't know about this podcast. You called me. Uh, so, 
<laughs> so I'm a big believer in getting help from my friends. So in, in this circumstance, my friends would be y'all, uh, the, the reps, uh, to help go through uh, DJO themselves to organize it. And I'll be happy to, and I'm sure DJO is happy to uh, help facilitate that. Well, doctor, I will put a link to Mark Olarsh with DJO. So if anybody wants to reach out to you and connect for more information, we can put you together. You've had a surgery center at the Institute since 2002. What are your thoughts on reverse shoulders in an ASC setting? I think it's going to be here pretty soon. I mean, one thing we learned from the pandemic, we had to do our shoulder replacements outpatient and we were able to manage it. Now that some of those restrictions have gone away, I still do uh, some of my patients in the hospital, in fact, the majority of them, but I, I think that will be happening soon. Dr. Frankel, I was on the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons website, ASES, recently, and there was a special message from the president, and that president is you. Congratulations. Well, thanks. What an honor that has to be. Yeah, it's been a, a real great year and uh, my time as president is quickly coming to the end but I'm hoping that for any of you you'll be able to join us in Tampa April 15th to the 17th for this year's annual ASES meeting it will prove to be an excellent one we will have uh, guest speakers from around the world uh, talking about their early uh, adaptation and experience with reverse arthroplasty so uh, it will give a, a, perhaps a, a little bit more richness to this discussion that we had so far about the origins of this. Your CV, Dr. Frankel, is deep and wide. Anything in particular as you look back on your career that you were the most proud of? I don't really look at my CV anymore <laughs> right? Um, because it's not. Um, I mean, I think winning the Nero Award was great. Uh, there are several reasons for that. One was Dr. Mori was the, uh, I think he was the president. So therefore, he was uh, sort of the person who gave me the award, so that was special. Um, as it turns out, Dr. Morio also was the president of the nominating committee when he called me to let me know that I'd been selected to serve uh, in the presidential line. So those were special moments because of that relationship. Uh, any advice for surgeon slash rep entrepreneurs out there listening that are at the very beginning of their big idea? If you believe in your idea, then you and you are willing to sacrifice and work for it because it's something you have to do, then you should do it. And uh, you just recognize you're going to have failures. And uh, if, if you can learn from your failures, then they're not necessarily failures. They're just one step to success. Well, awesome. Dr. Frankel, let's tie up shop here. What do you want your legacy to be, sir? You know, uh, I'm not so certain that I understand the whole concept of legacy. I figure when I'm and I'm not here, I'm not here, so I don't know what that will mean. Uh, I don't really think it was the I ought to. I, I try to think in terms of things that really give me satisfaction or a sense of accomplishment. So it's sort of you know, educating people the same things, learning new things, uh, you know, trying to stay healthy uh, so I can enjoy all these other things. So most of my focus is on that. I don't really think much uh, about you know, what's going to happen when I'm done uh, because <laughs> I won't be here. You're a real hero of mine, sir, and a, a case study and perseverance in the face of headwinds, real headwinds. And I just wanted to say well done, sir. Well, thank, thank you for uh, spending this hour with me. I greatly appreciate it and hope that 
the people listening find it uh, worthwhile. Bailey, Walker, Gramont, Tournier, Encore, Helmetica, DJO. What a tour. What a story and what a surgeon. Dr. Frankel, thank you so much for sharing your story, stepping out of line and giving the world a different way to look at reverse shoulder arthroplasty. Thoroughly enjoyed that. We'll continue to explore looking at our device world in a different way with you overtakers out there as we look at the economic impact of the business of medicine. If you're an undertaker and a caretaker, you're certainly welcome to. And I hope you have an amazing week. Thank you so much for listening. And if you would like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, leave a rating and review, subscribe, and connect with yours truly here on Twitter at Device Nation. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.